welcome you back to the Fresh Expressions podcast. This is a bonus episode uh, with uh, a, a dear friend and leader in the missional movement, Mike Frost. Um, and I am Gannon Sims, and I'm joined by uh, Heather Jalad uh, for uh, this this little um, introductory uh, portion of the bonus episode. Uh, but I was really struck, Mike. Uh, has been a part of the missional movement. I mean, he's a he's a forerunner in it. He was writing. I mean, he wrote the shaping of things to come, and I think two thousand three, uh, long before many were were talking about the the need for the church to sort of press into a new future. And he he makes uh, this uh, theological move because he and and many others, and I think he's he's uh, going along with Jürgen Moltmann and others, just talking about the missionary God, uh, mm, the mm. God who sends the Father and Son, and that's what propels the church. And I think that's where we 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 need to start. And, and often we start the, the missional conversation with how to like uh, – rearrange the chairs at church um, yeah. to be more outward facing and and frost encourages us to step way back and let's let's really think about how we we look at the life uh, of of god the sending missionary god yeah yeah i mean i um I, we're, we're calling this a bonus episode and and gan and i were talking before we hit record and i think this is a bonus 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 episode there's so much good <laughs> stuff in here um i like Gannon mentioned the shaping of things to come was uh so impactful in my early um my early years when i was in seminary having to read the shaping of things to come alan hirsch and 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 michael frost uh really have shaped very much my my own theology of of the church and the mission of the church and um in my own practice uh in the fresh expressions movement that um i just there was there's a lot of gold in this conversation that you have with with michael frost and and some of the things that really struck me as i kind of listened in to to you guys um in your conversation were were how he really does drill down on um the, the triune nature of God is all encompassing as one um, of sending uh, the God who sends the son and sends the spirit that the sent sending nature and character of God, which is meant to be um, really that the church as the body of Christ is meant to, to be sent to the world. Good news to the neighborhood, a gift to our neighbors. And he I loved I loved his um, kind of sharing, you know, if, if, if I came to your church and walked through your building with you and looked at your budget and not to not to um uh say anything negative per se but to to really look at the the nature of your church is it missional or is it attractional and really kind of unpacks that as to you know how we use our buildings how we see ourselves as a body in that particular neighborhood and uh really just a lot of gold in here for for us to consider as we as we look at the future of the church and these fresh expressions of church that um that are a part of that future so Gannon Anything else you want to share before we kick it off? Yeah, thanks, Heather. I mean, it's a wide-ranging interview. We talked a little bit about the early uh, days of Fresh Expressions, sort of a tale of two dioceses, dioceses that that adopt the the uh, way of being that that Fresh Expressions advocate, uh, dioceses that does not. Uh, we we talk about. Uh, I ask him to give kind of encouragement for pioneers and leaders, and so I, I think you'll. Uh, Really enjoy it. And um, yeah, so without further ado, here's Mike Frost on the Fresh Expressions podcast. Welcome back to the Fresh Expressions podcast. It's a bonus episode. I'm Gannon Sims, and I'm here with Mike Frost. And Mike is a, a dear friend and a leader in the missional movement. Uh, he's uh, Coming to us from from Sydney, and uh, we're glad to have you uh, on the podcast, Mike. Hey, Gannon, it's great to be uh, back on with you. So uh, you've been, Mike, at the forefront of the missional movement for a long time, and I, I think some of some of our audience might look to you to help them translate to the people that they know, the people in their networks, what the missional movement is, what it's all about. So how do you help us all kind of understand where the missional movement has been and where you see it's see, see it going? Well, whenever I'm explaining it, I always uh, remind people, or not remind people, I tell people that the 
The first thing to understand is that the whole missional conversation is not primarily, or at least it was not initially, a conversation about a new understanding of church, even though the missional conversation will have implications for church. But for many people, they think, oh, this is a conversation about new ways to do church. But I always try to teach people that actually the whole missional conversation is a conversation about a new way to understand God. It's actually a theological revolution more than it is a ecclesiological or a church-based kind of new movement. Now, it does have implications for church, as I said before, but the original missional thinkers were not saying, here's some new cool ways to do church. They were saying, hey, we've forgotten something very significant about the character and nature and work of God. It was a theological conversation because of various factors. The chief one I'd suggest is because of the the um, dominance of Christendom in North America and Europe and Britain and places like that. And we'd forgotten the fact that at the very heart and character of God is this external impulse, this kind of missional orientation in the character and nature of God. It's not just enough to say churches should be missional. The first step is to rediscover the idea that God essentially is missional. And one of the guys who affected me most in this respect was David Bosch, a South African missiologist who was writing in the 1980s, early 1990s. And he said, open the first page of your Bible and what you see is God acting like a missionary, like from the very act of creation. Creation is an act of God sending himself out into the cosmos in order to create the universe, to create order. So the, this, the creation narrative is actually a story of missionary enterprise. God sends out his word, and God said, and God said, and God said. His word goes out and separates the light from the dark. His word goes out and separates the land from the sea and from the air. His word goes out and, cre- and creates the, the fish of the sea and the animals of the land. His word goes out and creates humankind. So at the very beginning of our encounter in the Bible with God, we encounter God as the sent and sending God, and that creation is an act of missionary enterprise. And it has this peculiar kind of uh, addendum in, in chapter 2 of Genesis where God then actually breathes out his spirit into the nostrils of humankind and establishes this peculiar relationship between God and humankind. And so From the very first page, God is extending himself into the cosmos, into the chaos to create order. And then David Bosch says, the rest of the Bible is all about God seeking after humankind, sending his Shekinah glory to the tabernacle, to the mountain, to the temple, sending his word through the prophets, sending his presence again and again and again. So that so a Jewish theologian like um, Joshua Abraham Heschel would say that, you know, you want to understand the, the Hebrew Bible, it's all about God in search of humankind, God extending himself after Israel. but. We're new, new covenant people, and for us it just reaches this extraordinary crescendo where what we understand about God is that God the Father sends God the Son in order to reveal God's nature to us. So whenever we ask ourselves, what does God look like, the answer, kind of classic New Testament people always say the answer is, well, look at Jesus. Jesus will tell you what God is like. And what is Jesus like? 23, 24 times, I think, in the book of John. Jesus is described or describes himself as a sent one or God is described as the one who sends. So if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. What is Jesus like? Jesus is a sent one. So this idea of God being the sent and sending God is all the way through Scripture. It reaches its highest point, I think, in the revelation of God through Christ, the incarnation. But, man, I I mean, you couldn't finish there, could you? Because you'd have to say, well, to also understand God, you need to recognize that God the Father sends God the Son, and then God the Father and God the Son send God the Holy Spirit. So kind of one of our key doctrines, the doctrine of the Trinity, is about sentness. 
lots of people speculate about, well, what's the relationships like between the three persons of the Trinity? And we can kind of speculate and make some kind of educated guesses in terms of what Scripture tells us. But the one thing we're certain about from Scripture is that the three persons of the Trinity send each other. At the heart of Trinitarian thinking is this idea of the God who is sent and sends. It's blasphemous to talk about God being sent as though someone other agency is involved, but God is sent, but God is the one who does the sending. So to understand the very character and nature of God, we have to understand this idea of sentness. That's a made-up word, but I think you get the gist of it. You don't get God if you don't get this idea. So that the great um, Anglican missionary to, to India, Henry Martin, once said, the spirit of God is the spirit of missions. The nearer we draw to God, the more intensely missionary we become. And if you just replace the word sent with mission, I mean, I think what you can do. I think it's a reasonable um, correlation. The quote really pops when you think about it. He goes, the, the, the spirit of God is the spirit of sentness. To understand the spirit of God, you can't get God without recognizing this impulse externally outward from God. The spirit of God is the spirit of sentness. The nearer we draw to God, the more intensely sent we become. That to become more godlike is to see oneself as sent into the world. Now, that then has implications for the church, but which I'm happy to talk about too. But at the, the beginning of the conversation, Gannon, I, I just like to like establish for people, no, no, this is a conversation about the character of God and something that we forgot about God for a very long time and have been have rediscovered. The very nature and character of God is not the one who sits in the temple or sits up on high or calls people to himself. Actually, the reverse. It's the God who enters in and sends himself into human experience. So you might remember those old evangelistic tracts, the the um, bridge to life, where it was like, you know, you're on one cliff face and God is on the other and you're trying to get to God and, oh, you can't do it. But the cross, you know, becomes this bridge. Jesus died so you can get to God. Actually, it's God who comes to us. It's God who bridges the gap. It's God who comes into our experience through the Spirit, through Christ, into our lives, seeking after us. God is the sent and sending God. So any person who claims to desire to be godly has to come to terms at some point with what it means to see themselves as sent into the lives of others. So let's keep threading that needle. That's that's beautiful, Mike. So so it we have the sending God. We have the triune community uh, that is being uh, coming to us, pursuing us, passionate about us. Um, and I love I love the word passion because it really does relate to the crucifixion of Christ before it ever meant something about what we're excited about. That's that's a newer think way of thinking of the word. But um, so so then it goes kind of propels the church. So it, it's not just propelling. I think a lot of us, and, I, and I'm speaking from an American context where we like to do everything in isolation as little individual uh, souls. Uh, but how then is the sending God propelling uh, the church? Yeah, well, the more the more the closer we draw to God, the more intensely sent we become. Um, if that's true, then you have to ask questions about what's happening in churches where people have no such impulse, no sense of what it is to to see their community as the ones to whom they have been sent to be oriented to understand their neighbours or their needs to engage in the life of the the village or the community or the suburb or the town or wherever they happen to be. Um, what's going on? Um, it's not a lack of strategy or it's not kind of poor understanding of church. Just reiterating my earlier point, it's a poor understanding of the nature of God. And I think that Churches need to begin a theological revolution in their churches by taking people back into the theology, literally the way of thinking about God, which in turn I do think actually starts to shape us. I do think Christian people filled with the Holy Spirit have all the resources they need at their disposal to be everything that the church should be in their context. Um, 
It's simply a matter of opening their imaginations to where God is at work and what God is like. God is in our church and at work, but God is also at work in the lives of people in our community, in our city, and especially, of course, among the poor. And so as soon as we start to think rightly about the sent nature of God, it begins to move us uh, into um, mission. Uh, then all the sorts of questions arise like, well, what does it look like if the church as a community of people was as sent as God is in the triune community? We would then see ourselves as a gift to the community and we would be oriented around what it looks like for us to enter meaningfully into the hopes and yearnings and fears and desires of our neighbours. Um, and then rather than thinking in terms of, well, what program should we run? What strategy should we employ? It's much more about becoming servants to the needs of the community. So much, and in North America, you guys have been, you know, experts at this, and you've, you've exported these ideas all around the world, including to my country, expert in, in how do we attract people to come to our church? How do we get people to come to our programs? And often we run them in our buildings and we staff them with our people uh, or we entice people to attend our services. Alan Hirsch and I wrote a book many years ago where we referred to this as an attractional impulse. There's nothing wrong with being attractive or being appealing or winsome. Um, there's nothing wrong with being a community that that people feel drawn to. All of those things are fine. But we use the word attractional uh, kind of an invented word, to describe churches that poured nearly all of their resources into trying to get people to come to them or their programs. And we don't see God doing this. We see God doing the reverse. And so it might be that churches need to unravel some of the current orientations they have and maybe restaff their churches in certain ways. But we, if we're going to mirror the work of God, need to see ourselves as people of God in community sent to our neighbours, um, moving out, building relationships, hearing, listening, attending, holding space, bringing the love of Christ into the needs of others. It's beautiful. So we are engaged, of course, in Fresh Expressions with this sort of like both and reality. So we have this, this idea, maybe, maybe we call it attractional, we call it historic, we call it inherited church reality but then we we think you know what if every church that's been around for a little bit and maybe they were doing the attractional sort of thing what if they push out into this idea of mission into this idea of sentness into their true identity uh in god as agents of the drama of god so so we see how that creates little uh fresh expressions of church new forms of church uh, so how can uh, the old, I hate saying, not old, the inherited forms of church, inherited forms of church, align their resources with this idea of the sending God, with being sent on mission to uh, all those who shouldn't be expected to come and, and be like uh us to use that term. Yeah, well, I mean, you could simply just do an inventory of all of your resources as an inherited church and ask how, how are they being utilized? Like you could look at staffing. What what are our staff paid to do? And if most of what they're paid to do is to lead services and to preach and to do pastoral care or to run the youth ministry or whatever it might be, if most of that is internal work among believers then, you know, you're an attractional church. You could then look at your your buildings. Who uses those? How often are they open? How often are they accessed? Who accesses them? What's run there? And if all that goes on in the church is church services and the Christian youth group and the men's fellowship and all the internal life of the church, well, that's fine, but you're an attractional church. And how do we spend our money? Is it on staffing? Is it on maintaining property? Is it on giving to, to our denominational you know, uh, 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 agencies and the like. Again, 
just do an inventory. Where is our money spent? I've had, Gannon, I've had people say to me, oh, no, Mike, we're a, we're a missional church. We're totally missional. We believe, you know, what you're talking about. And I just say, well, if you just show me your budget, if you just show me, introduce me to your staff, take me around your building, um, I'll tell you whether you're a missional church. I don't mean to sound like I'm the judge of all of these things, but you can be missional in theory. You can say, well, I believe all of that. Yes, I believe that the creation is an act of missionary endeavor, and I believe that God is in pursuit of Israel, and I believe that the Trinity is uh, an expression of the sentness of God. I believe all of that. You can believe all of that, but if it actually isn't being expressed in the use of your resources, then it's time to just do an inventory of those things. But I also want to be cautious that we not just see the inherited church as the the part of the church that's got the money and the buildings and the staffing and that the fresh expressions are those who are in need of money and buildings and staffing and, uh, hey, can the can the resources flow from one to the other? Because one of the things I do really like about fresh expressions, so it's first incarnation in the UK way back in the day, and I had a bit to do with those guys back then. I was never part of fresh expressions, but we're on the same journey really. And, you know, back then they used to talk about fresh expressions in the Anglican Church, uh, in the Church of England, as being a kind of a, a, a mixed economy was the language that they initially used. And I think that's now shifted a bit into more biodiverse kind of language around a blended ecology. I prefer the ecological language and the economic language, but I think it's kind of the same thing. But no, we, we agree with that. So, yeah, we, yeah. we like the uh, ecological. Yep. Yeah, well, the blended ecology idea is a beautiful sense that, you know, you think about a forest and a forest floor and the forest canopy, you've got huge redwoods, you've got you know gigantic trees that create that canopy, under which you've got smaller trees and shrubs, and right down the very bottom you've got, like in, in all the debris in the midst of a forest floor, you've got life, bacteria, bugs, like all sorts of things, all of which work together to create this beautiful biodiverse ecosystem. And if you take any of them out, you chop down all the big trees, the forest floor dies. But Literally also, if you could kind of vacuum up everything on the forest floor, it affects the big trees and they actually all need each other. And I like that kind of language from Fresh Expressions insofar as what it's saying is, okay, your church might be a you know gigantic tree or a big redwood or a big old tree that's been sitting in the forest for a long, long time, but you actually need the biodiversity of the the fresh expressions around you as much as they need you. So it could well be, yes, that fresh expressions are in need of resourcing and and being patronised by larger churches, that there are resources, needs that smaller fresh expressions need. But I'd also like that conversation to happen in terms of also recognising the inherited church needs what fresh expressions bring, that they may be the you know, the smaller plants in the forest floor, but actually they bring a richness and a diversity to that um, that ecosystem that the big trees need. So the question I would be asking is not just what have you got that you could uh, deliver to fresh expressions? How could you do an inventory of your resources in order to catalyze kind of fresh expressions around you um, I'd also be asking, what do you need that fresh expressions could bring to you? And sometimes th- that answer looks obvious. They bring innovation and creativity and energy and uh, all the excitement and verve and, and, and oh, how can I describe it, the deliciousness of being on mission and doing something creative and operating without a net. And I mean, in so many inherited churches, that kind of electricity is just so absolutely necessary for congregations that have become a little, shall I say, routine in their experience of, of God and community. Right. It creates mutuality. So, I mean, in the same way that all of the plants and animals in the ecosystem need one another, the, the church needs each other in all of these different uh, ways of being church. So we see um, even... even uh, it, as you go out to the edge, you see uh, sometimes the edge renews the center and then you can't kind of keep pushing out to new edges and because there's always a new edge. Yeah. Uh, there's always a new uh, avenue to explore or something new to experiment with. And we, we kind of keep um, 
those things lively on the edge while being able to come back to the center, the well, uh, the sending place, whatever you call it, that, that is kind of this um, uh, central operating system, however you want to call it, the, the mother. Um, so you, you write a little bit. In, in, so just on that biodiversity thing, can I just press yeah. into it even further? Because, you, you know, you, that notion of the edge and the growing edge is a really – helpful one. Um, another analogy I use is say to ask, what's the opposite of a biodiverse ecosystem? It's a monoculture. And what does a monoculture look like? Every sort of house in suburbia has a monoculture. It's called lawn. Lawn is a monoculture. It is one species of plant in a fairly significant kind of area of, of land. And lawn is just the most fragile thing to maintain, as you, as all suburban people will know. You have to fertilize it. You have to cut it. You have to attend to it. You have to weed it. I mean, it's – and the reason is because it is a freak of nature for you to have a single species of plant in one particular space. And weeds are regularly coming into lawn, which, you know, suburban people like – poison or pull out, you know, as soon as they appear. But in fact, weeds are what are called pioneer plants. Weeds uh, send deep roots down into the ground. Like lawn has very, very shallow root system. So it's easy, you know, you've seen, you know, lawn all rolled up in kind of turf and rolled out again. It's easy to transport. It doesn't go deep into the earth. And so that's weird. That's crazy. Nature itself is like, whoa, what's happening? Get some pioneer plants in there. And weeds come in to kind of put deep roots down into the earth to break up the earth. They're trying to revitalize a monoculture. Now, I once used this illustration at a church planting conference and said, you know, lawn is a freak of nature and pioneer plants, weeds, are the ones that are trying to make the earth wild again. I know you hate weeds, but if you're a church planter, think of yourself as a weed. And I've got to say, Gannon, it was the least successful illustration I've ever used <laughs> because Americans love lawn, it turns out, and most people are like, e, I don't want to be compared to a weed at all. But next time you see a weed in your lawn, think to yourself, this is wildness trying to come back back into this ecosystem and bring biodiversity. Everything in nature is, is oriented toward wildness. And I think that there's a lesson in that for us, that we've tried to create churches that are like monocultures. They're like lawns. And we shouldn't decry the wildness that is coming in there. Uh, the young people who are agitating for change, the, the, the new pastor or the youth pastor who's saying, you know, what would it look like if we started dinner churches or what would it look like if we went and reached those who are in need around the corner? Like these are weeds and so suburban people don't like it, but the weed actually has at its heart the yearning for the very thing that, that, that we should be. And we could keep playing with that because I, I'm, I'm going to push back on the weeds because I, I get it. Uh, but I see we see in, in uh, uh, gardening a recovery of native species. So um, where we have domesticated our uh, landscapes um, and lost the biodiversity that is inherent in uh, the natural order, uh, sometimes that rewilding of things is really rediscovering what the natives are already up to. And so a lot of us in the church need to get in touch with what's going on in the cultures right around us, learn from it, come alongside. Um, and then there's this beautiful thing that happens when uh, the quote native peoples um, become uh, kind of immersed in uh, the divine life of God. So um, that's, I think, Kind of a way that we can think about the the weed analogy and, and maybe grow uh, <laughs> yeah, some deeper roots. Is better, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you in, in in some of your writing, you you uh, kind of looked at say a couple of um, Anglican dioceses and fresh expressions sort of originated in the Church of England, and and you've noted. Uh, the distinction between, say, a diocese, uh, a, a denominational group that embraced this uh, reality of new forms of church and one that 
I did not. They were reticent to do that. Uh, what did you uh, explore uh, in in your writing and, and research on those two realities? Yeah, I mean, I just looked at. I, in fact, what catalyzed it was that the Anglicans in Sydney, where I live, uh, had put out a report talking about how catastrophic their decline had become. And I mean, the Sydney Anglicans are very evangelical and um, quite activist. And I mean, we're a former British colony, so they're they're not quite the state church in the same way that the Church of England is in the UK, but but they're a kind of pseudo-state church, I, I guess I would say. So they're quite dominant and they have all the big property and the cathedrals and the big schools and all of that sort of stuff. And yet, despite all their activism and all their um, uh, energy and all their resources, uh, they're in sort of catastrophic decline. And the report I was reading was like, whoa, what can we do about this? Um, we need to train more ministers. And this is a, this is a diocese that only trains um, men for, for ordained ministry and is very conservative theologically. If we train more ministers, younger ministers, I think there was an attempt, uh, an encouragement to train uh, non-Anglo ministers to engage with the multicultural nature of Sydney. You know, this this will be the answer. But there was no reflection on whether we ought to renegotiate the way we do church or what we understand about church or mission or or, or uh, engaging in, in issues of poverty or social justice or need or, or anything to do with kind of uh, inclusion of women in leadership and so on and so forth. So it felt to me, no disrespect to the Sydney Anglicans, like pretty much the model is fine, but we're just going to tweak it some way to kind of get it better. And yet they've been talking that way, as have lots of denominations, you know, for a long time. And the results are still the same, continual uh, exponential decline. And I was comparing that with some some dioceses in the UK, which, uh, t- to be honest, have probably declined more more than the city Anglican uh, diocese has, but have then recognised their desperate need to engage and were, were then launching fresh expressions, and which had led to uh, an exponential increase in the number of lay people, including women, engaging in leadership of various kind of projects. It led to all sorts of energy and creativity and diversity and joy and the growth in, in new congregations or fresh expressions, as they called them. I'm just comparing the two of these. You know, one is on its way on decline and but is not willing to renegotiate anything. But just if we tweak this a bit better, maybe we could could avert the decline. And another that had said, yeah, there's no hope in the inherited model. Um, it's not to say that inherited congregations should be abandoned or anything like that. Let's love people and serve people and utilize what God has given us. But let's open the door to all new kinds of expressions. Uh, listen to people who have a yearning or a hope to, to engage with issues with young families or with the poor, with new immigrants or with refugees. Listen to those who have a heart for that and resource them and equip them and encourage them, hold them accountable and love them and nurture them and see if God isn't actually, as the sentence-sending God, actually at work in their lives and in the lives of those that they feel called to engage with, those that they feel sent to, Maybe God is at work in this chaos and this messiness and all this kind of innovative sort of um, uh, and beautiful kind of chaotic activity. Could God actually be catalyzing something which is uh, honoring to him? And so it was a permission-giving kind of setup. So that that was essentially what I was was saying in, in that work, that, that particular uh, article that I wrote. It was um, – there isn't any hope in just tweaking the existing model and just cutting the lawn a little bit, you know, less, less, you know, better, make the lawn more lush, use more fertilizer. Actually, the hope is in, in rewilding, as you say. So let's talk a little bit about that permission-giving uh, impulse that you you saw there. So a lot of um, it, it, churches, denominational agencies can kind of get behind fresh expressions, give a load of permission, so to say, get out there, uh, go native, understand the culture, and rely on the intuition of newer believers or pioneering leaders who who just kind of feel it in their gut and they know how to do the mission 
Um, but when a little bit of success starts to happen, then there's there's almost a, a high level of permission, but a lack of support, um, whether it be institutionally or financially or otherwise. So, how do you how do you see um, a healthy marriage of the permission and support? Yeah, yeah, that's a good that's question. A good I think because um, yeah, it's easy just to give permission without any responsibility. So, yeah, go get them. You can do it. Um, it's about um, it's about bearing the weight of responsibility as leaders of the say inherited church. Give permission and encourage, but you have to go on the journey with the people that you are releasing. I mean, that they need they need. I mean, it's a bit of a technical term, but they need pastoral supervision in that respect. I mean, and that's not just, oh, let me check in with you. How are you doing, Gannon? Is it all right? Yeah, that's that's not supervision. That's just checking in and being a friend. Um, but professional pastoral supervision actually is sitting with the people who are leading your fresh expressions or your new projects, hearing them, directing them to the resources that they need, and they may need uh, learning. They may need to do this course or read that book or, or, or uh, be mentored by that person, uh, uh, it also might well mean that they need support like in, in actual resources in terms of uh, I need more mature people to come alongside me in this project or I need some money for this project. Um, I, I would suggest that we need to see permission giving with responsibility as our framework, not just simply permission giving, because I think that can be irresponsible. And I've seen certainly back in the early days of the missional conversation, lots of traditional church pastors gave permission, like go for it, do it. And then lots of people, younger people primarily, went off with lots of energy and excitement and it it came to naught or they burned out or it became a stinking mess or it went completely off the rails and a lot of those people and i'm in sydney i'm still in touch with a number of them became really disillusioned about church and faith as a result of that and in fact a lot of critics of the whole missional conversation were like haha see what happens it's it's it doesn't work so i think that they're I think the stakes are high on this one, and particularly now that we're you know we're twenty or more years into this conversation, I think that uh, those inherited church leaders who are taking this seriously need not simply to to give green lights; they have to uh, enter into a process of pastoral supervision, whether it's by them or by other leaders in the church, to um, to support the the, the new the thing new. that is is happening, uh, because some fresh expression leaders need to be slowed down. Not not sped up. Uh, some need to be you know, given free range, but others they need to go into this in a much more uh, measured and um, uh, a, a way that uh, they can manage at step by step. And the only way to know whether to speed someone up or slow someone down is through that more intensive pastoral supervision relationship. And so we've almost got to see a reordering of priorities everywhere where the senior leaders, the denomination, the bishop, the whatever sees uh, him or herself as the equipper of uh, all the saints for the work of ministry and entering into relationship. Um, and, it's, you know, and I, I really think, you know, when we talk about supervision, I think a lot of pioneers are, would be a bit squeamish about that, but it is a deeper relationship. Um, it's spending time asking questions, making sure that they're okay. And then, and really um, being in it with the pioneering uh, leader, uh, sort of setting aside the administrative task for a moment and, and, and doing the relational work that does take more time. It's harder. Um, it's easier to sort of uh, fire off an email than it is to spend a time really doing the relational work. But I think that's where that's where it is. And that's where people need us to be in the church is is to to see those thick relationships lived out uh, in caring community. So so a lot of people well, are going to say that uh, here in here in Sydney, we had huge scandal with um, very high instances of child sexual assault by clergy. I mean, similar to what happened in places like Boston and Ireland. Um, and it led to a, uh, a government inquiry into the assault of children 
by religious practitioners. And the stories were unspeakable. I mean, it was just uh, every night on the news you heard these incredible stories. But when the, when the uh, magistrates brought down their findings, they were horrible enough, but their recommendations included a recommendation that all clergy should be given professional supervision. And in their report, they marvelled at the fact that ministers of religion of all, of all denominations, it wasn't just focused on Catholics or, or Protestants, of all denominations, they were saying, you could hear the incredulity. They were like, can you believe it? But there are men and women in pastoral ministry leading churches have no pastoral or, or professional supervision whatsoever. Like that does not happen in the medical professional, in counselling, in, in in most kind of fields. You, you are supervised professionally by somebody above you in a system somewhere. And they were astonished that you can graduate, go be a pastor somewhere and never be supervised. And to our shame, I mean, it actually kind of took a, a government inquiry to now legally require all ministers to, to have professional supervision, which, I, as I said, I think is just shameful for us. Why did we not already, not just on the issue of child assault, but even on the issue of what it means for us to be better at serving God among our congregations and in our world. So we're now required to do this as a result of a dreadful government inquiry. And I mean, sorry, the government inquiry was good, but a, a dreadful outcomes of that inquiry. And so, um, yeah, I, I commend it strongly, not just for the, for the sake of the protection of children, but for the fact that um, how could I possibly be all that God intends me to be or wants me to be without the supervision of a more mature, more experienced person. I think that that ought to just be standard thinking, Gannon, but definitely in the case here of fresh expressions, where often the people who are launching fresh expressions are not theologically trained or haven't gone through some accreditation process with a with a church or a denomination. All the more do they need, well, you wouldn't call it professional supervision, but they need pastoral supervision in order to help sustain the ongoing work of God's mission in this world. Now, once again, gives permission to the center, the inherited church, to sort of create ways uh, to supervise, to resource, to train. It, it really does. Back to that uh, a blended ecology sort of way of thinking is it, it creates this new uh, ecological uh, system. Now, um, you've also written, Mike, a little bit about, uh, you know, experimental communities and, you know, often they might have a shelf life of no, three years, five years, ten years, that sort of thing. But but it's it's rare for these really innovative, creative communities to sort of go beyond into another generation. Why is that, and should that be cause for concern? Uh, it, it, it shouldn't be cause for as much concern as some people think. I do think that God does like there there is a burst of life among a certain group of people that runs for a period of time and then for whatever natural and organic processes of people moving on or people getting older or kids growing up or, you know, they they decide that they will then infiltrate into other churches and the like. I don't have any problem with that kind of thing. I have a problem with churches or fresh expressions of dinner churches or more organic or experimental communities, house churches, coming to life and then then dying in the context of disappointment and a sense of failure. I, you know, I don't want to see that happen. But, yeah, church that, that a church like that that runs for 10 or 15 or 20 years and then in a really creative and positive way decides that it's time for, for that community to, as I said, kind of dissipate into other communities, I think that that's, that's good. I, I, I think it's great. I think really beautiful and wonderful things happen over those 10 or 15 or 20 years. I've been part of something like that, and I, I look back and think it was some of the, the happiest and most beautiful times and hardest times of my life in ministry. But too many, Gannon, kind of get started with high hopes and then they have no supervision, very little resourcing. They're not up to dealing with internal conflict or differences of opinion on theology or um, or interpersonal conflicts happen or, and the thing kind of fizzles and dies and people feel incredibly discouraged by that. And I can't see how that 
could be a good thing. I recognize that happened a lot, sadly, throughout COVID. And that was a very peculiar kind of time. It's hard. I mean, obviously, in certain settings, it was just not possible to meet in homes and it wasn't possible to have dinner together in, in certain places, depending on government restrictions. So that aside, because that's an external pressure that was placed on some of those things. And I hope people that who started and failed during the pandemic still have the energy to launch again because there is more hope these days. Uh, no one could have seen any of that kind of thing coming. But, yeah, I think there's a difference between kind of positive organic endings of these things and something just just going to shit. Give us an example of, of you know, from your experience, that, that positive ending that then maybe infused maybe new communities or other churches, that sort of thing. Where have you seen a kind of a positive yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, here in Sydney, again, I think, you know, we had for a long time, we had a church, I think they probably ran for about 30 years. Um, uh, uh, it was called Glebe Cafe Church. And it was like, it started way back in the day where it was kind of like, oh, okay, it's like a it's like a cafe restaurant kind of gathering around tables. And I mean, it's no big deal now. But back then, it was like, well, that's different and innovative. And they ran very successfully for, for at some points being a very large gathering. I would occasionally be invited to go and speak there and it was a very dynamic and energetic kind of, you know, um, group of people who would otherwise never have found their way into uh, conventional kinds of churches. And over time, you know, it, it, the, the people grew older, kids grew up in that church and moved on, as as is the case, moved on because they moved out of the area. And uh, it grew smaller and smaller, but it had a very significant influence. I mean, it influenced me. Uh, I later planted a community called Small Boat Big Sea, which was also around tables. It was a, a dinner church in an old church building as Glebe Cafe Church had been. We were very influenced by Auckland Baptist Church, Mark Pearson's work in alternative um, uh, uh, worship uh, uh, modes. So, uh, And all three of those now no longer exist, but I think that they had huge influence on, on churches. I mean, at Small Boat Big C, we had I mean, there wasn't a Sunday went by we didn't have a group of at least a carload, sometimes a busload of people showing up from more traditional churches just to see, just to look. And at first we thought, we're not a zoo. Like, we don't have to come and visit us. But I remember it was not me. It was another leader in that community said, no, actually, like, we have to see ourselves as not just sent to our neighbourhood, which we had a very strong commitment to. But maybe we need to see ourselves as sent to to more inherited churches around here, just to give them a flash, a spark, a, a, a moment of seeing there's other ways to do church than than the, the traditional. Now, in all three of those cases, they they ended well with a celebration. Uh, we had left Small Boat Big C before they decided to end. Like they they continued another five or eight years after we left, but we were invited back and there were lots of tears, tears of joy, lots of sense of um, nostalgia and memory of all the beautiful things that had happened and a kind of commissioning and closing and ending, which which felt to me really, really godly and really um, beautifully empowering as people were then sent out to some had already left to go plant other things. Others had moved back into more inherited churches. Um, but to just acknowledge that this was a spark of life that has then sent us out into different places around uh, our city. Now, for the community out there that might be um, discouraged, uh, they might be that other sort of story that you you talked about a newer, younger community that's that's discouraged. What advice would you give to a community that's feeling discouraged? Well, I'd say draw on all the, all the myriad resources that are now available in all sorts of places, like Fresh Expressions and and Forge, and in just about every denomination has has something that's going to help you or support you or encourage you. Uh, I would say find mentors, uh, reach out for people who have been further down the road from you who have had experiences of how to get over that hump of whatever it is that you're currently struggling with, which is making it feel like it's not working or not going. But I also say to fresh expression leaders and new church leaders, go easy on yourself too. Like, I mean, you still, a lot of them come out of church growth 
oriented churches where God's only at work if our church is growing and getting bigger and bigger. They've come out of those churches and say, I don't want to be part of that. But that still operates back in the back of their minds that, oh, we're not growing. Oh, it's not getting bigger. Oh, you know, numbers are going down. Now, they might be going down because lots of terrible, toxic, horrible things are happening, but they might just be going down because of the normal rhythms of people in your neighbourhood and your life. So I would say release yourself from counting things and start seeking what God is doing in our neighbourhood and seeking to engage with that. So release yourself from your old, your parents' and grandparents' old church growth kind of frameworks. And then how do the leaders stay healthy in the process? And we've talked about supervision a bit, but how do you think uh, the leaders should stay healthy and kind of, you know, stay on mission and and stay uh, delighting in the Lord? Well, that just comes down to, um, uh, well, sorry, it doesn't just come down to. I think mentoring and supervision are incredibly important in this respect. I think accountability is really important too. And I don't just mean between the leaders and some external um, body or person. I think we should hold each other accountable. I mean, when we were at Small Boat Big Sea, we had five missional practices that we lived out and we met together regularly to hold each other accountable to those things. And not just to say, did you do this and did you do that? It was like, did you do this? Yes, I did. What What learning? What understanding? What struggles, what questions have, have arisen because you did that. And we, we, we held each other accountable. We also nurtured each other and discipled each other in that process. So I would say a, a kind of a, a deep life of mutual discipleship, nurture and accountability is incredibly important. Mike, it's been great having a conversation with you. Um, Really, really fun to be together. Thanks so much. This is uh, the Fresh Expressions podcast. Fresh Expressions is a worldwide movement of everyday missionaries who want to see churches thrive in the places we eat, play, work, and yes, even in our traditional churches. To learn a simple five-phase process for starting a new expression of church, Go to freshexpressionsus.org backslash how to start. The Fresh Expressions podcast is hosted by Gannon Sims and me, Heather Delod. It's edited by Joel Limbaum and produced by Kathleen Blackie and Chris Morton. Our national director is Dr. Christopher Backert. If you've learned something or been encouraged by this podcast, please help us spread the word. You can give us a review on Apple Music or Spotify and share this episode on social media. Now, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that God's ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations.